140 of your pew Bible, Psalm 22, found on page 540 of your pew Bible. When you think about the Psalms, what comes to mind? My guess is that most of us go down one of two paths. Some of us are drawn immediately to the theology of the Psalms. Remember, theology literally means words about God. So some of us, the great attraction of the Psalms is the depth of their insight into the character of God. We love Psalm 23 that portrays God as a shepherd. Or maybe with Martin Luther, we love Psalm 46 because God is indeed our mighty fortress and our strength. Others of us, when we think of the Psalms, are drawn to them not so much as theology, but as worship, or we might say liturgy. Of course, uh, we appreciate the depth of the theology, that goes without saying, but what we really appreciate about them is the way they give expression to what life with God is really like. We love them so much because we find ourselves in the Psalms at the best and worst times of our lives. When we cannot even find the words to pray, we use the Psalms to awaken our own hearts and to untie our mouth. Whichever of these describes you, the point is simply this. The Psalms are as rich in theology as they are in human feeling and experience. If you go to the Psalms for theology, you will find passionate praise and practical reflection. If you go to the Psalms seeking insight into your own heart and life with God, you will end up in deep theology. The two paths braid and cross and ultimately become one lovely road. The Psalms are such a unique gift in your Bible, and I hope just thinking about these things will draw you back into it at every season of your life. Tonight, as we come back to Psalm 22, I do, however, want to add a third priority or a third road when we come to consider the Psalms. It may not be the first thing you think of when you think about the Psalms, but it really should be one of your very first thoughts. The Psalms are not just great theology and worship. They are also highly, highly prophetic. They are prophecies. In fact, I would argue that two, two of the three greatest Old Testament predictions or prophecies of Christ occur in the book of Psalms. Because David wrote so many of the Psalms, it shouldn't surprise us that they are messianic and prophetic, that they look ahead to the coming of the Messiah and God's final plan for the world. After all, David is God's anointed or literally God's Messiah. The Psalms record his struggle, his suffering, and his ultimate victory. Not only that, but as Peter reminds us in the first New Testament sermon, David was a prophet. His relationship with God was intense and it was visionary. So we shouldn't lose track of the, this important facet of the Psalms. 
they are heavily prophetic and messianic. The early church, the earliest Christians, did not need this reminder. They quickly realized that the Psalms were heavily messianic. They learned to hear right away in David's experience a type or shadow of what was coming. Sadly, that way of reading the Psalms suffered during the 20th century, but it's coming back today, not just in Bible-believing circles, but even among unbelieving scholars. The Psalms are just so messianic, so prophetic, it can't be ignored or missed. Tonight, let's turn back then to one of the greatest prophetic psalms of all, Psalm 22, and we'll begin our reading in verse 22. Would you stand for the reading of God's prophetic word? Psalm 22, beginning in verse 22. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. This is God's word. Let's pray now and ask his blessing on it. Father, we thank you for the vision given here to the prophet David that he might see the glories of Messiah and of the messianic reign. Open our eyes to see Christ in this, his word, and that seeing him, we might rejoice with great joy. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Last week, we looked at the lament portion of this psalm, verses 1 through 21, that first half of the psalm. The lament, the wailing, the agony of Psalm 22 is the famous part, of course. It's so memorable because Jesus quotes from it in his darkest hour. He cried out from the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, or my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 1 of this psalm. And as we noted last week, in Jewish thinking, and I'd say it's true even today to some degree, quoting, quoting the first line of the lament was really a way of taking to himself the whole of the psalm. 
Because he was being crucified, Jesus could not narrate to us what crucifixion meant for him. He physically could not give a sermon or a lesson to his disciples on what he was experiencing, what was happening. So Jesus gave the church Psalm 22 as the key to unlocking his experience on the cross. Psalm 22 then is God's appointed tour guide to what the crucifixion meant for Jesus. If you look at them, the gospel writers actually build their accounts of Jesus' death around this psalm in obedience to Jesus' own teaching. And Jesus still says to us today, if you want to understand my agony on the cross, don't go watch a bloody, gory Hollywood flick. Instead, read Psalm 22. It's for this reason you might remember that Psalm 22 has been called the fifth gospel because it is Jesus' own teaching on what crucifixion meant for him. Now, last week, we considered the Messiah's lament in verses 1 through 21. We heard the two great agonies the Messiah experienced. In verses 1 through 11, you had the agony, remember, the agony of abandonment. David writes, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, abandoned me? In every other case in history, God had either delivered his chosen ruler from suffering or walked with them through that suffering. So David is bewildered when it seems, at least for a time, that God is not saving him or hearing him or even near to him. Then in verses 12 through 21, David expresses the second agony, the agony of execution. Now, it's likely here that David was actually very sick. That was probably the original historical moment. There's no time in David's life, we noted, that literally fits this description, where he is surrounded by enemies, stripped and laid out, pierced in hands and feet, his garments being divided up. But the Holy Spirit moved David to describe his struggle, whatever it was, illness, whatever it might have been, to describe his struggle as an execution, and don't miss this, to describe a kind of execution that did not even exist when David wrote this psalm. Well, the turning point of the psalm comes at the end of verse 21. Unfortunately, uh, the English translation accidentally hides it, But the last word of verse 21 is, you answered me. You answered me. In verse 2, David had said, I cry by day, but you do not answer. Suddenly then, as the lament is winding down, an answer is given. Maybe a prophecy, maybe a vision, maybe as many scholars think there was a priest present who brought a word from the Lord And now David knew that he would be okay. Whatever the details, the whole psalm here at the end of verse 21 turns on a dime. Having been delivered out of the most horrific suffering, David now plans a feast. On the surface, as we'll see, this was a pretty normal reaction back in those days. God's people were encouraged to make a feast to celebrate God's goodness in times of trial. 
However, once again, as David begins to describe the feast, it becomes something more, something much more, a feast that will come to dominate world history. Let's look at it together. So first of all, see with me in your text, the feast for God's people in verses 22 through 26, the feast for God's people. The feast begins, as we might expect, with an invitation. David enters into the congregation of Israel. Verse 22, I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. His prayer for relief has been answered. He was dying. He felt abandoned. But God, in an act of incredible power, has saved him. Now he says, I'm going into worship. I'm going to go to my church. For him, it would have been the temple mound. It would have been the tabernacle. And in front of other believers and publicly, I'm going to acknowledge what God has done for me. This kind of answered prayer needs to be told to the whole church. He must tell it to his brothers and invite them to the celebration. Many, many years later, hundreds of years later, the author of the book of Hebrews, chapter 2, will quote this verse of the psalm and point out that Jesus fulfilled this verse. He was delivered from death and abandonment, and he also is not ashamed to call us brothers and to invite us to celebrate with him as family. John Calvin and many others uh, quote here, John chapter 20, verse 17. You remember the setting maybe. Jesus has been raised. Mary has come to the tomb. She meets Jesus, and Jesus gives her instructions. Remember these words. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God. Now, what did Jesus just do there? He sent Mary to his disciples, who he calls brothers, and he gives them, he gives to them the name of God, which he has been teaching them from the beginning. One of the revolutionary aspects, and I don't think many Christians understand this, so grab a hold of this if you don't know it already. One of the revolutionary aspects of Jesus' teaching was that he taught his disciples to call God Father. Think of the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven. As Moses had taught the people to call God Yahweh, and the giving of that name was considered the greatest revelation of Moses' ministry, So now Jesus teaches his disciples to call God Father. And so Jesus, fully aware of this verse in Psalm 22, says to Mary, his first words, go to my brothers, go to my brethren, and say, I'm ascending to my Father and your Father. This is exactly the prediction of Psalm 22, verse 22, where David, coming out of a crucifixion like death, says, I will tell your name to my brothers. But the connection goes even deeper. As David rushes into the congregation to invite his brothers to the celebration feast, we have to remember, we have to remember that David calls them brothers 
even though some of them had turned against him. Remember back in verses 1 through 21 of our psalm, David was quite clear. David told us that everyone had turned against him. Everyone had abandoned him. His friends had abandoned him. And verse 11 sums it up. There was none to help me. There was none to help me. But despite that fact, David rushes into the congregation and he's not ashamed to call them brothers and invite them to the celebration and to the feast. Now make the connection here, brothers and sisters. Imagine how Mary, how her words fell like grace on the ears of the disciples. Jesus has risen and he sent a message. They might have expected Jesus to say, you worthless traitors, where were you when I was dying? There was none to help me. But instead, he says, go to my brothers and tell them once again, give to them once again the name of God. In both cases, in the Psalms and in the Gospels, the righteous afflicted king is delivered. But instead of punishing the faithless, instead of shaming the ones who turn their faces away from his affliction, instead he rushes into their midst and says, praise with me the name of God. What happens next is also full of gospel truth. David, as was his custom and the custom of the day, invites these brethren to the feast. And we know it's a feast because look at verses 25 and 26. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. The picture here is that David has gone to the temple site and is fulfilling his vows. Like many people in the Old Testament, David had taken vows while he was suffering. He had vowed that if God delivered him, he would give praise to God. Now delivered, he pays his vow. In the Old Testament, this is called the votive feast or the vow feast. And it would mean a great celebratory meal spread in honor of God's salvation. The law required that you especially invite the afflicted and poor to this feast, as well as your friends. When the afflicted came and ate the meal, God was comforting them. He was saying to them, look, look how I delivered this man. Know that I will one day deliver you too. And so David says, verse 26 the afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. David doesn't just mean food will fill them up for 24 hours at most. David meant, the Old Testament meant, that they would be deeply encouraged, satisfied, comforted, hopeful. Jesus invites us tonight to look on his suffering and to see how God delivered him. We are to come to the feast and celebrate. No one suffered like him. No one was so totally abandoned. And yet God has raised him up and given him the name above every name. So let the afflicted come. 
Let them raise their glasses and give the toast that ends verse 26. May your hearts live forever. Or maybe we can use the words of Psalm 34. My soul, writes the psalmist, makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble or the afflicted hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I sought the Lord and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. This is what so much of your Bible is about. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters. Jesus said it so clearly throughout his ministry. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Why? Because they will be satisfied. And Jesus said, the healthy have no need of a physician. The afflicted, the afflicted are the ones who will know satisfaction in the end. For them, the feast will mean so much more. Israel's rejected and brutally executed king will spread for them a table. And in that table, they will see their own salvation as it's coming and be comforted and be satisfied. Christianity is not a religion of self-improvement. It is not a religion for life's winners. Rather, it is only for those who are afflicted. It is for the one who is hungry. This is why prostitutes and thieves come to Jesus and morally decent folk couldn't be bothered. The feast will satisfy. In fact, you will never need to eat or drink again, but it only satisfies the afflicted. Calvin writes that the afflicted who sat down with that David that day to the feast, the afflicted, quote, saw in that feast as in a mirror the goodness of God set forth to all who are in affliction, offering, he says, wonderful consolation, wonderful comfort. At the Lamb's feast, all the afflicted, beholding the salvation of Jesus, are given wonderful comfort as they go through their time of affliction. So we see first a feast for God's people. Now second, see in verses 27 through 31, a banquet for the whole world. A banquet for the whole world. Now up to this point, up to verse 27, the praise portion of the psalm makes sense in David's world while being perfectly fulfilled during the time of Christ. But now, beginning in verse 27, we move to something that transcends David's world altogether. The whole psalm here is prophecy. But here in verse 27, we come to pure, high-octane, if you will, prophecy. Because David, in these final verses, watches in a vision, as it were. He watches as this feast for God's people, his humble afflicted people, breaks through the borders of Jerusalem, surges outside Israel, and covers the whole earth. 
this votive feast, this Old Testament feast of thanksgiving captures the whole world. And so verse 27 says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. David is saying what God is going to do for the Messiah will satisfy, first of all, the afflicted within Israel. But it won't stop there. This salvation story will be God's appointed means of drawing all peoples to himself. Through this dramatic account of deliverance, God will make the nations remember what they once knew. Before the Tower of Babel, they knew the one true God. They are all Adam's children, but then for centuries, they wandered in idol worship. But now, because of this meal, because of this act of salvation on behalf of God's anointed king, they will finally remember and turn. David here is keenly aware of Israel's mission. Israel was to be a nation of priests. That is a whole people group set apart in every way, different food, a different clothes, but above all, different faith, a different heart. And their mission as a priestly nation was to draw the whole world back to God. That's why Abraham was promised that this priestly task would happen in his bloodline. God said to him repeatedly, in you, all the nations will be once again, as in Eden, blessed. David here writes that through God's salvation of the Messiah, the executed Messiah, through this votive feast, the world will be brought into the kingdom of God. Literally, he writes, they will remember the Lord and turn. And then suddenly, if you're like me, in your mind, you're standing with Paul on Mars Hill in Greece. And Paul says to the Gentiles, those former times God overlooked, but now he calls all men to remember, to repent. And there at the cultural heart of the Gentile world, the idols begin to crumble and up goes a cross, up goes the afflicted Messiah, the symbol of his affliction, and the world turns on its axis. The feast is spread and the nations begin to pour into heavenly Jerusalem because they are sick, they are tired, and they are hungry. And the Bible holds out to you and to them not just another powerful, brutal conqueror, not another strong man, but one who has conquered through affliction, a savior with scars, a savior who has conquered through love. And over the past 2,000 years, the best music, the best art, and the vast majority of the charity done in the world has been done in the name of this afflicted one. History becomes his story. And even as our Western civilization desperately tries to return to paganism, to somehow forget the Lord once again, even as we try to do this, a million come to Christ in Africa, 
A million come to him in China, a million in the Middle East. Because the banquet cannot end, and the guests pour in, and there are always more seats. Today, once again here and all over the world, the invitation is given to all who are weary and heavy laden, or to use the words of this psalm in verse 29, to all those who are going down to the dust, that's us, to all those who are going down to the dust, to those who cannot keep themselves alive. Or hear Jesus' own parable, his parable based at least partly on this psalm. Luke 14, Jesus said, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. So the servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in who? The afflicted, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. For Torah says that when you have been delivered and you spread the votive feast, the feast of the vow, you must bring the afflicted with you. That is what David saw. He realized that nothing less than the future of all humanity belonged to the king, the suffering king of Israel. For verse 30 says, posterity, that is the future, shall serve him. To his prophet's eyes, the future unrolled like a scroll. He saw our day and he rejoiced to see it. Do you see now why we began tonight? Why I began tonight by saying that the Psalms are the book of Christ, that they are prophetic? This Psalm announces and predicts a banquet laid out by the most afflicted one, one who was abandoned and executed publicly, but then vindicated by God, he goes to his wayward brothers, those who mocked him and abandoned him. He goes to them and he goes to the distant Gentiles and invites them, all the afflicted, to a banquet. This banquet then, this table, is spread for you, for the afflicted of every nation and every time period. David's spiritual eyes saw very far, and they saw very clear. Maybe only one other person in the Old Testament saw as much as David. Isaiah's visions are the most profound in Scripture. He saw the same banquet. Many of the prophets saw the restoration of Israel, but Isaiah's vision kept going further and further out into the future. With the theologian Gerhardus Voss, I think this range of vision that Isaiah has came to him because of his vision of the throne room at the beginning of his ministry. He was so captured by the glory of God that he wasn't satisfied just to see the restoration of his people. He wasn't satisfied just to see Israel regain its place in the Middle East. No, he wanted to see it all, and he saw it all. He saw the big plan of God for the world. And so he wrote what he saw. He wrote these words you heard moments ago. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts 
will make a feast for all peoples, a feast of rich food. On this mountain, he will swallow up the covering that is cast over all the peoples of the world. On this mountain, he will swallow up death forever and wipe away every tear. And on that day, we will say, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. And then David here at the very end of the psalm in verse 31 gives his amen. If I translate the last word of the psalm for you, maybe it will help you to hear it. The psalm ends with one simple Hebrew word translated literally, it is finished. The psalm was in Jesus' heart on the cross. He claimed it from start to finish. He fulfilled it. And now the table is set. Won't you come to the feast? Come and celebrate. Say with me, this is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice. Amen. Father, we thank you for such glorious visions of the messianic era and how blessed we are to live during these days. And though there are many things in our world that discourage us and many things in our nation that are happening tonight that discourage us, lift up our eyes and help us to see. For even as we speak now, even as we pray, the nations are pouring in to Jerusalem, to this feast, all the afflicted of the world. May we be with them in joy. And may we see that day, the great day of his return, and rejoice and be glad. Though we may be afflicted in this life, yet we know that our votive feast is coming. Our day of redemption, our day of vindication, our day of joy. Help us to stand firm in him till that day and to rejoice at his table. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.